As she said, it is an exciting time to be part of our church family, isn't it? Uh, there's a bunch of stuff I've been thinking about and want you to be thinking about and praying for. We are soon going to be adding to our office team, which we've been, we've been seeking and praying for. Uh, you can keep praying for our, our worship pastor search team. We've narrowed down to three great uh, followers of Jesus, and uh, there's lots more work to be done there, though. So keep praying for us as we see who God has in mind to uh, serve on our staff team and lead us in worship here. Uh, in a couple of months, we are going to be adding a second worship gathering on Sunday mornings, so uh, we can, we'll gather together at 9 a.m. and 10.45 a.m. That'll be in a couple of months from now. That's exciting things. Um, and then something else I was reminded of this week. Uh, is Pastor Ed in here? Yes. Pastor Ed's in here. He's not going to like that I'm doing this, but it came to my attention that earlier this month, Pastor Ed uh, celebrated 34 years of ministry at Faith Church. And I think that's awesome. Thank you, thank you, sir. You're a blessing to me and to our church family. And uh, I think it speaks volumes that my predecessor served for 38 years, um, our previous worship pastor for 14, Ed for 34. And as we seek God's direction for adding to our staff team, they see that and those people notice uh, your uh, generosity and your respect for our pastoral staff and for the health of our church family for many, many years to be that stable. Um, you may think it's normal, but it's not that normal. And so that's pretty exciting. Um, well, my name's Derek. I'm one of the pastors here too, and I have been here 470 days or so. So, <laughs> no, 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 no. No applause after the 34 years. That was just a joke. No applause. So last weekend, we had family in town, and um, we got to go do the, the creek at Drift, uh, the, the creek? We got to do the hike at Drift Creek Falls, and um, this is a picture of myself, my, my wife is in there, her sister's in there, all of our kids are in there, my brother-in-law is taking the photo, and if you haven't done the Drift Creek Falls hike, this is a suspension bridge, it's about 240 feet across, and uh, we're standing 100 feet above the riverbed. And then the quality of the picture isn't super great, but we'll zoom in here. And if you can see on the right-hand side, that's me holding on my, to my niece, Esther. And, um, and it was great to have their family with us. And right before he decided to take this picture, my brother-in-law goes, here, take the baby. And I love my niece, but I'm standing on a moving bridge 100 feet above the riverbed. And, and I was a little nervous because I felt like Esther was in a precarious situation. But she wasn't in a precarious situation. You know how I, how I know that? Because I was holding on tight. <laughs> and my feet were braced. And I would refuse to get near the edge of the bridge. Do you see that I'm standing in the center of the bridge? So while Esther may have seemed to be in a precarious situation, she was uh, safe in my arms. And as we open God's word this morning, we are going to find that a a woman named Esther in the Bible seems to be in a precarious position, but she is firmly in God's arms. And as we, in, as we consider this story, we're going to see that God's people, the Jews, were in a precarious situation. Yet we will find that they were firmly in God's safe arms. So something to consider before we get to this story from our Old Testament, from the history of the Jewish people, of God's people. Does Jewish history matter 
to us Christians today? Yeah, good answer. But, but sometimes it's not always that clear to us. If God's people don't survive the events of the Old Testament, there are no descendants of Abraham. Abraham was one of the fathers of the, the Jewish people. There would be no descendants of Abraham. If there's no descendants of Abraham, there would be no fulfillment of the prophecies of the coming Jesus, the rescuer, the promised Messiah. So if there's no descendants of Abraham, no fulfillment of those prophecies, there's no good news of the gospel. There's no Christian church as we see it. So this is vastly important to us as followers of Jesus. So before we get to our story from God's word, our historical account, true story from God's word here, I want to look on the screen at an Old Testament timeline, and I want to help us figure out where does Esther occur in the story. And so this is just a quick recap. You can see kind of from the beginning of the Bible on the left-hand side from the creation account through the, the patriarchs, the fathers of the Jewish people, the call of Abraham. Then, of course, the uh, God's people were enslaved in Egypt. And you have the Exodus where God miraculously called his people out of slavery and, and, and headed them off to their promised land, Canaan. And, and before they could go there, because they were blowing it, they were had some time in the wilderness, you can see. Then they arrived in Canaan, in the promised land, and they were governed, and then they became, uh, then they, be, they began to have kings. Then the kingdom sadly split into two kingdoms, the north and the south, Judah and Israel. And, 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 and then I'm going to have a video now to play that's going to help us pick up the story. Why are God's people then conquered by foreign nations and taken into exile? If God is with them, if these are God's people, why are God's people about to be conquered and taken into exile? Why are they taken out of their land? What happens next in history? And how long before God's people will be able to return to Israel? Take a look at this video as we consider uh, the background to our story of Esther. My great-grandparents told me stories of a mighty dragon that descended on the holy temple. The people had rebelled against God. I will declare my judgments against them for all their evil in forsaking me. They have made offerings to other gods and worshiped the work of their own hands. In his anger, God turned his people over to the fearsome enemy, King Nebuchadnezzar, the dragon of Babylon, through whom the fury of God burned against my people. Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has devoured me. He has crushed me. He has made me an empty vessel. He has swallowed me up like a dragon. The tears of my people flowed like a river, but they could not quench the fires that consumed our land. Into the wilderness we were led, defeated and destroyed. The God we'd forsaken, we thought he'd forsaken us. But even in our darkest moment, God would not leave or forsake his people. Once more, he made us a promise. 
I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt that you rebelled against the Lord your God. I will take you, one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. For 70 years, the people of God lived in Babylon. Over time, Babylon began to wither, and a great lion rose from the east, Cyrus, the king of Persia. His armies consumed the world. He set his gaze on the remains of the great dragon's lair, Babylon. There, Cyrus led a cunning attack, and the kingdom fell. Cyrus was a great and good king and did not believe in keeping men as slaves. During the first year of his reign, he issued a decree that freed the Jews. God stirred the hearts of his most devoted people to journey back to Jerusalem and rebuild his temple. And let each survivor, in whatever place he sojourns, be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with goods, with beasts, besides freewill offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. Cyrus went the way of all men. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. Behold, Ahasuerus, Xerxes the Great. Under Xerxes, the empire prospered, and so did the Jews, who did not return to Jerusalem. Among these Jews was a family of the tribe of Benjamin. They gathered all they could scrape together and headed out from Babylon for the richest city the world had ever known, the Persian capital of Susa. During the journey, both the mother and father died, leaving a baby girl to Mordecai. Little did my cousin know that I would grow to be a woman the world would never forget. I'm just going to be real up front and let you know that anything I do up here the rest of the morning is not going to be as cool as that. <laughs> but we're going to open God's word. And God, God's word is going to speak in big ways to us this morning, right? As he always does. Grab your Bible, if you would, and open to the book of Esther. Uh, there's a big book in the middle of your Bible called Psalms. If you take a left from the Psalms, you're going to go a couple of books to the left and find Esther. Esther, Job, and Psalms. Love when you bring your Bibles. I encourage you to bring your Bible each Sunday. Open it. We teach through the Bible here at Faith Church. I'd love you to keep your fingers in the text if you don't own a Bible you can come see us at the Connection Center, and we will get you a Bible, if not today, uh, very soon. So um, uh, bring your Bibles, and let's open them together to Esther chapter 1. We're going to start at verse 1 as we kick off our series through this book in the Bible. 
Father, as we open your word, we bring ourselves to you, to your feet. We lift our eyes to you. Help us to open our ears and our minds that we might hear from you. And not that we would just learn information or hear a true historical account, but, but that we would be open to what you want to do in our lives, that you would change us through your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Esther chapter 1, verse 1. Now in the days of Ahaz, ah, there I messed it up already. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, and some of your Bibles say Xerxes, so I'm going to use those two interchangeably. Same guy. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. Whoa. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, in the third year of his reign, he gave a feast. For all his officials and servants, the army of Persia and Media was there, and the nobles and the governors of the provinces were before him. Why is he throwing this party for thousands of guests? Verse 4 tells us, he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and the pomp of his greatness for many days. How many days? The guy threw a party for 180 days for thousands of people to show off his glory and power. And then the text keeps going. Verse 5. And when these days were completed, the 180-day party, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast, party number two, lasting this time for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. And he's showing off. And there's more. Verse 6. There were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver. Where they are sitting is rich show-off stuff. Also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of I don't even know what that is, but I'm sure it's fancy. Marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Man of great power. Man of great wealth. Showing off, and it still goes. Verse 7, drinks were served in golden vessels. Vessels of different kinds. And the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. Pretty much unlimited refills of their red solo cups. Verse 8. And drinking was according to this edict. There was an edict about their drinking. There is no compulsion. And what's happening here is, is uh, there was tradition, I believe, for the people to drink when the king drank. And so he, he gives this edict. He has to create a law about their drinking, basically freeing them from that tradition. They could do whatever they wanted. There is no compulsion, for the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. Verse 9, Queen Vashti also gave a feast, party number three, in the first few verses of Esther. She gave a party, a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. Thinking back to verse 8, does, does, a true, does true power, does true respected power need to legislate people's drinking? 
Uh, regulating minute details. I, I, this is the first of many glimpses we're going to get of where Ahasuerus seems strong, where his leadership is actually quite weak. And there's many glimpses, the way this author writes about the story of Esther, that gives us kind of almost comical insights into the reign of, of Xerxes, of, of, of his supposed power and glory. We get glimpses in this story that we chuckle at. Seriously, buddy? That's how you're going to handle this? When this king reigns, this king we're reading about here, when this king reigns, he feels compelled to show off his wealth and power. The purpose of these verses, of, of all this description of what, what we were sitting on and what they were eating, drinking from, the purpose of this passage is to impress us, right? To, to have us be awestruck by his wealth and majesty and privilege and power. But hopefully, at the same time as perhaps awestruck and impressed by his wealth, hopefully there's a tinge inside of, of the readers of this and us today of, of the wastefulness. What a poor use of his wealth. Wealth and power, yet he's showing off. Wealth and power, yet it's wasted on what he wants, what works for him. One of the commentators that I studied this week reminded us, this would be like watching your tax dollars at work, too. Not exactly what you had in mind. But it's not just them back then and all their wasteful parties, is it? It's not just them thousands of years ago with their emphasis on material things and showing off and impressing others. We, too, live in an earthly kingdom we, too, live in a culture that puts too much power, uh, too much emphasis, I should say, on power, wealth, and glory. This kingdom that we live in hopes that we'll get sucked into keeping up with the Joneses. This kingdom that we live in hopes that we, uh, convinces us that if we just get that next one thing, then we'll arrive. That next car, that next promotion that designer handbag or whatever. That then we'll know. Then we'll have everything we need. It's the Jews back then that are living in Persia in a secular culture, and it's us Christian Oregonians today. We could allow ourselves to be assimilated into the culture around us. We could allow ourselves to just blend in and do what everybody else does and live under this king, this human earthly king who reigns, or we could recognize that it's the capital K king who reigns. That it's our great God who reigns. And that in his kingdom, in his kingdom, what is impressive, what holds value, what is of true significance has nothing to do with our stuff. True value and true significance doesn't come because of our stuff and it doesn't because we uh, uh, exalt our own glory. True value and true significance comes as we find our true identity in being sons and daughters of the great king, our great God, and as we revel in putting him, giving him glory, not ourselves. Back to, your, back to the word. Look with me at chapter, I mean, sorry, verse 10. 
On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, you think? And it's not just the seventh day. What is it? The 187th day? When the king was merry with wine, he commanded many human, busy, harbor, biggie, a baghead, zitty, and carcass. The seven eunuchs. That's not just me trying to mispronounce what's in the Bible. That's me doing what the author did. It's very interesting. The author is giving us a true historical account, and yet the way that they wrote those, those, those names, it was, like a little, it was like a little jab at the significance of this kingdom. It was a little twisted uh, take on their name. Seems to be in, in humor and poking fun. So when the king was merry with wine, he commands the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and all the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. Some interpreters wondered if by commanding her to appear wearing her crown, some interpreters have wondered if the intent was for her to appear wearing only her crown. And even if that is a stretch, it's definitely not a stretch. It's definitely clear for us to see here that Xerxes' intentions are not noble. I'm going to get back to that in just a minute. I'm going to insert a little side note. That content that we just covered and my comments thereof were pretty mild compared to what we need to cover in coming weeks in this book. And so I would encourage you parents in particular to be familiar with the story and be prepared to have great conversations with your children that are learning from us in this sermon series. Okay, I'll keep it appropriate up here, but we're going we're gonna to look at the situation of what Esther found ourselves in. Make sense? You with me? Okay, so it's clear that Xerxes' intentions are not noble when he commands Vashti to appear. When this earthly king reigns, he spends six months showing off his possessions, and now it seems he wants to show off another seeming possession. When this earthly king reigns, he spends six months showing off his possessions, and now he orders the queen to appear as if she's an object that exists only to serve his purposes. We should find it humorous that he's so powerful, but he sends seven guys to collect the queen. His sinful, evil desire here is for his attractive wife to come in her crown and be on display before a group of intoxicated men. Verse 12. But Queen Vashti refused to come. Good for her. But Queen Vashti refused the mighty and powerful Xerxes. She refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men, who knew the times, 
for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment. The men set next to him being Karshena, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Maris, Marcina, and Memukin. The seven princes of Persia and Media who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. And the king asked, verse 15, According to the law, what is to be done with Queen Vashti because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus? Delivered by the eunuchs. Here's another glimpse of Ahasuerus' weak leadership. What should be done? You guys tell me. I need a little help. Verse 16, then Memukin said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. Slightly overstated, perhaps? For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, well, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. Now, here's an interesting question. Would everybody in the kingdom really have heard the story? Would the whole kingdom really have been flipped upside down by Vashti's refusal? This very, verse 18, this very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. When this king reigns, we see how women in Xerxes' kingdom are treated. But it's not this king who reigns. It is the king, the creator of heaven and earth, our mighty God who reigns. And so we see what women are treated like in this earthly kingdom under this lowercase k king. And now we want to see how husbands are to treat wives in God's kingdom. And one of many great places to look for that is in Ephesians chapter 5. And I'll put a couple verses on the screen if you want. This is a great passage about marriage. And first comes this. That, that in a list of describing what it's like to be filled with the Spirit. When the Bible urges us to be filled with the Spirit. To live full of the Spirit. To Live out the Spirit's will in your life. And then it goes on to give a list. And one of those things is to submit to one another. It reminds me of the Philippians passage we covered a few weeks ago. Where Jesus is the ultimate example of how we are to think and act. That Jesus is ultimate example of, of not thinking of what was most convenient for him. But going to the cross to give himself for others. We submit to one another because we put the needs of others ahead of our own. And that very same passage continues with this verse. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Xerxes expected Vashti to submit and come to him. And yes, yes, God in his good purposes intends for wives in a Christian marriage to submit to their husbands. And, and this, this causes us to look a little cross-eyed because we live in a culture that has been 
uh, influenced greatly by feminism and, and, and the following. And there's lots of great things that come from that and lots of ways in which we need to continue as a society to bring to elevate women to God's place for them as equally created, equally loved, equally saved by Jesus' sacrifice, equally gifted and special and unique and made to serve our great God. But our, our culture has tweaked it to the point where we, don't, we cringe a little bit at this idea, but have we forgotten the other side? Because unlike Xerxes' leadership where Xerxes simply desired to exercise power and to show that he was better and to show that if anybody, if he said anything, people would do it. Unlike Xerxes, who's using his leadership to dominate and to control, we continue in this passage and we see what godly leadership in the marriage looks like. If wives submit to your husbands is one side of the coin, here's the other. The next passage. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. Any other husbands join me in thinking that doesn't sound very easy? Sounds like a tall order. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes, just as Christ does the church. If wives submit to your husbands is one side of the coin, the flip side that we can't forget is God's expectation. I believe a high calling, high expectation for the husbands to truly love their wives. And one of the people I studied from this week wrote this. This is what true love is. Not husbands using their wives as objects to meet their needs and satisfy their own desires, but rather giving themselves up for their wives, gently leading them to fulfill their gifts and godly aspirations. And then listen to this quote from him. If husbands were more like Jesus and less like a Hazarus, then perhaps we would find our wives more ready to submit to our leadership. Is there any amens from the ladies? I don't know. If us men, if us husbands were more like Jesus and less like a Hazarus, maybe the submitting to our husbands doesn't sound so bad. And in fact, when we study the rest of Scripture and we see that women are created in the image of God, special and loved and unique and awesome, men are created in the image of God, loved and special and unique and awesome, And humans reflect the image of God. Men made in the image of God. Women made in the image of God. You know what the best reflection of the image of God is? Man and woman together. Different. Equal, but different. And and coming together according to God's purposes. and, and, And imaging him and glorifying him in their lives. That's what God has in mind. It's a beautiful thing, what God has in mind in working together in our marriages. All right, got your finger in the text still? Okay, verse 19. One moment, please. Verse 19. 
If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree was made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, guess who is going to hear the story of Vashti's refusal? Everybody. Why? Because the king's so paranoid and in control of every detail of everything. Because he's not as powerful as he seems, he's showing his weakness, and he spreads the story to everybody to prove a point. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all the kingdom, for it is a vast kingdom, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. I'm not sure that Xerxes' power was really threatened by the incident, but his paranoia, his out-of-control need to influence everything made sure to spread the story. Verse 21, this advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Memekin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master of his own household and speak according to the language of his people. Um, I want to, as a quick side note, I want to use this opportunity, and this was uh, something that I saw as I studied and, and, and was suggested to me by smarter people than me, is that we should allow this episode, um, this news getting out. There was an event, Queen Vashti's refusal of the king. There was the king's reaction to it, how it made him feel. There was his overreaction to wanting to make sure how this was perceived out there and that, and that the response would be appropriate to this episode. Are you with me? And we should let this episode remind us that, um, and not be oblivious to the fact that almost all news comes to us with a measure of spin. And, and this, thousands of years ago, is no exception. And today, what pops up on your phone for news or on your television is, is, is no exception. We need to be reminded here that almost all news comes to us with some sort of spin. And what I mean by spin is some attempt to control us, to control how we view the news and how we receive it and how we respond to it. And certainly this is true in politics, but it's not just in politics we're talking about. This is true in advertising, right? I love Pastor Aaron's example a few weeks ago that, you know, this advertisement that convinced us that our lives were terrible if we didn't have a certain kind of garden hose. If you missed it, sorry, it was awesome. But it's true in politics, it's true in advertising, and I think it's even true in between us as people when we spin things according to our own preferences. We spin the story, we tell it a certain way to preserve how we come across looking. And so when we, re when we receive information, we need to take these things into account. And I think we as followers of Jesus need to be better than this than we are. Better at this than we are. Because I think we're getting played sometimes. And I love that, that, that uh, we've got this August series in our church every year to bring in experts like we had this morning and to help us think through difficult issues and to help us think biblically and think as Christians about the issues of our culture. Because that's how we want to be known, don't we? As, as thinking people who, who want to follow Jesus with our whole heart, mind, and strength and, and learn to think biblically and critically, theologically accurate about the things that are going on in the news and the things that are, are, are going on in our culture. 
So do we fact check? Do we consider other people's views? Do we take into account the source that we got the information or do we just pass it along? I think we need to be careful about how we process incoming information. Uh, do we just pass the information around willy-nilly as if it's fact? Or, or do we consider where it came from? Do we consider how others will see it? Do we consider how, uh, how they will respond to it? I think we need to be wise as we represent ourselves and more importantly as we represent Jesus in our words and actions and our online posts, how Jesus will be perceived because of the way we communicate. Everything comes to us with spin. So, so be careful, let's be wise, and uh, let's ask God to help us uh, learn to think through a lens, look at the world through a lens of the gospel, of the good news of Jesus, and, and understand what's going on in our culture and how we as Christians can, can best glorify Jesus in the way we interact and follow him. So most importantly, as we wind up here, I want you to look again with me at verse 19. And this is really where we want to land this morning. And this is where we really want to focus our minds on what Esther's all about and what we're going to see in the coming weeks as we study this book. Look again with me at verse 19. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. Is this historically significant? If, it was, if we were there in this moment, this may not have seemed particularly historical significant, uh, historically significant, especially to the Jewish people. Would they have noticed this or would they have paid much attention to this? Well... There went the queen. Ahasuerus got mad, kicked out the queen. And then, whoop, out of mind. Because it didn't seem, you wouldn't think at first glance, that this is historically significant. But here's something we learned from the book of Esther. Sometimes we have to wait and see what God is up to. Sometimes it's not obvious at first glance. And you know something weird about the book of Esther? Many of you already know this. What's something strange about the book of Esther? The name of God is not explicitly mentioned. Isn't the Bible about God? How did the book of Esther get in here? The book of uh, God is not mentioned by name in, the, in this entire book of the Bible. And because he is hardly visible in the story... It might seem like he's absent. But just because we don't see God working doesn't mean he's not there. Just because you in your life today, in the circumstances you find yourself in, in the, in the difficulty you sound, find yourself frustrated by, just because you don't see God clearly at work doesn't mean he's not there, friends. So, in this historical record, do these things matter? And 
what's going on? Why, why does Vashti throw away her position? Why does Xerxes make this foolish demand for her to come, for her to, come to him? Who came up with the idea to replace Vashti with a quote-unquote better woman? At the time, we could explain all these things away. Well, the king got mad, kicked out his wife. You could either explain them all away, or, as we'll continue in our study of this book, we could see that these events all lead to the rise of Esther. Coincidence or the hand of God? When this king reigns, when this king reigns, he invites us to his banquet. And why would we want to go? Because this king, his laws are haphazard and his purposes are selfish. But, but at Faith Church, and we as followers of Jesus know that it's not that king who reigns, that it's the king who reigns. And the king our great God invites us to a banquet too. And his laws are a beneficial, are worth obeying. And his purposes are good. And so as followers of Jesus, we look forward to a future banquet. God inviting his people to a lavish banquet celebration. We see a couple of verses on the screen. The Lord of hosts will prepare a lavish banquet. Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. This looks forward. This, looks, this helps us as followers of Jesus look forward and gives us a picture of celebration. That is, being in the presence eternally with our great God. So why do we teach stories from the Old Testament? Sometimes we, we, we're not sure why that big part of our Bible's there. We think all the good news of Jesus is in this part. So why do we, in, our, in the back part, in the smaller part, so why do we teach uh, Old Testament uh, truth? Because our whole Bible, the Bible that you hold in your lap, the Bible tells the, the one big God story. The Bible from beginning to end tells the story of our great God desiring to rescue a people for himself. And so we look to our Old Testament as well. And, and everything, even here in Esther, even in a book that doesn't even mention the, word of, the name of God, everything points to Jesus. Because the gospel is the good news that Jesus, that God has sent his son to save sinners. Sinners. 